Kia ora and welcome. This is the New Zealand Wine Podcast. I'm Boris Lamont. Thanks for joining us on this episode where we're down at Pureri Hills Winery in Clevedon, which is southeast of Auckland. This was recorded on site and I do apologise that the audio quality is not 100%. We're speaking with Judy Fowler, who is the founder and owner and winemaker of predominantly Bordeaux-style wines. It was a beautiful day in what is a beautiful part of the country. If you're wanting to find out more, just look up puririhills.com. But right now, let's have a chat with Judy. So hi Judy, thanks for having us out here at uh, your beautiful property on what is a very beautiful day in spring. I'm glad to have you, and I'm delighted that you um, are able to be here on such a perfect day. Yeah, no, it's... it's um, we can see all the way to the Coromandel. You can see all the way to Coromandel across the harbour, which is uh, very impressive, very impressive. And um, so just a little bit about uh, your story, Judy, and how you got to be uh, making wine here in Clevedon, um, just southwest of, um, southeast of Auckland. Southeast of Auckland, mm. and we are the only... Uh, a state of winery out this way too, mm. so we're sort of on our own out here. Um, I grew up in Virginia, I'm, I'm a dual citizen, and been in New Zealand now for 20 years. I began my interest in wine when I was 18 and went to um, uh, many parties with my um, boyfriend at the time who had a roommate who had come to um, University with his um, XKE, his trust fund in sponge wine cellar. Uh-huh. And I've never had any alcohol before. So I learned to drink first by four dogs. It's a nice way to learn. <laughs> I you know, didn't really know what they were. I had no background in wine. But I think once you taste those elegant, um, wonderful food wines and you develop a, a preference for them, it never leaves you. And while that boyfriend is uh, long gone now, the, um, the fellow whose wine I was drinking is still my friend and he was later making, uh-huh. making wine himself in um, the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Right, okay. But that began a, uh, what has become a lifelong interest in, in primarily um, the Bordeaux style, which to me is a classic food wine. It has a huge range of uses with food, and uh, um, it's for newer wine, uh, newer wine drinkers in the world, it's, it is a little bit less um, understood how last they would be blending all these uh, grapes together rather than making pure varietals. And that, that's a simple thing to understand when you look back at the French history, because the, the actual traditions of making blends um, because they're better. There's a synergy there that you, you cannot create in one varietal by itself. Um, is It's been developed over thousands of years, and it's a good tradition that, that we're carrying on here, and I think it's beginning to catch on in the new world that um, many wines are blends, and um, that they offer a unique uh, historically based combination of what? That's why people keep making mm-hmm. um, Anyway, I was quite a um, 
an avid cook in addition to being a businesswoman. Worked for General Electric in the U.S. and then traced around the world with my second husband, who was uh, an executive at British Petroleum. We finally came here. He was brought here to run uh, New Zealand Company. And um, at that point, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. This is into my job. Fifth move in eight years and ten years, we've been moving a lot. And my career had really been uh, sort of upended by that whole process. Closer, sorry. Um, so when we, we got here, one of my insistences before coming was that when, I, when we got here, I would spend some time figuring out what I wanted to do with my life at that point, and that um, when I figured it out, I would do it. Not long after we got here, one of my husband's colleagues at work took us out to dinner at a restaurant on the North Shore and ordered a bottle of Providence wine. Mm. It was a 1993 Providence. I had never heard of Providence. Had known about New Zealand Sauvignon Blancs and about I'd had a bit of Stony Ridge while we were living in London or in Australia, but but um, very little experience with uh, wines of the quality of Providence. And um, when I realized that this right bank Bordeaux style could be made so well in the Auburn region, it just clicked I was going to do it. Okay. And so we started. We hadn't bought a house yet. We hadn't decided where to live. So I, the first thing I did was hire a good cultural advisor. And he and I house hunted together. We, uh, we searched all around uh, from Madagascar around to the southern part of the... Right, okay, uh, so that's, yeah. quite a, that's quite a big zone then to be looking in. Yeah, we looked, in, looked out west, we looked in Whitford, we looked in um, Paraka. And when we got here, this was an area that he felt, particularly in this valley in the lee of the Muaytai Hills behind us, and protected by the Hunuas and the the Coromandel in the distance was a drier, warmer area than a lot of the other regions of in Auckland, of Auckland Great Gordon. And nobody had ever given it a try. Mm. There had been a couple of other people who put in vineyards, but they had been in really sort of chilly, low spots, and they hadn't worked out terribly well. So anyway, we settled on this place and bought it in 1996. And then on July the 4th, which is our Independence Day in the U.S., of 1997, I poured the first, a, bo- a bottle of wine into the first hole and put the first plant in the ground. Wow. So um, many, um, many plants later, many years later. What were those first plantings? That was probably Merlot. The initial planting was uh, quite, didn't turn out to be quite what we expected. It was... Uh, 2,000 Merlot plants and 1,000 Cabernet Franc plants, so we thought. But five or six years later, the uh, oddball Cabernet Franc that we had uh, was genetically fingerprinted by my colleague um, Robin Ransom, who also had the same clone of Cabernet Franc, and found out that we had common yet. <laughs> so we had this mystery outbreak that what the devil is common here? We we'd never heard of it, um, but it explained why the 
the behavior of the plant was so difficult for us to cope with and so different from what we were expecting. Meanwhile, I had in 2000, in 2000, I had planted NTAV clones, which NTAV is the, um, um, I guess the copyright or the um, trademark body that um, in in France that has control over the the plant materials from Bordeaux. Right. So we we have planted NTAV clones of um, Cabernet Sauvignon and Cabernet Franc. And I have some Malbec down there that um, Jim, some of it came from Jim's vineyard. Okay, up in Providence in Minnesota. Um, It's, I lost my train of thought. We were talking about the beginning, what we originally started. What you were planting, yeah, and what you sort of went through to plant after that. We had a um, wonderful old farmhand whose name was Ivan Pope who came to work for me in in 1997. And he and one of our neighbor boys dug every single hole out there by hand, over 7,000 plants, and um, planted the vineyard. Ivan, there's sort of a side side story on Ivan. He died of lung cancer in 2005, which was our first exceptional vintage here at Boyer Hills. Mm. And so we named our exceptional vintage wine after them. Mm, okay. Since then, we've produced three Boyer Hills pubs yeah. in 2005, 2008, and 2010. <coughs> There's actually another one in 13, and going to be another one in 14, and there will be one in 15. Right, okay. So we're getting better. And better. Yeah, three good years. The vines right. are getting grown up, and the winery is properly equipped, and, we, and the wines just keep, keep getting better. Mm, mm. But it's been a um, a really interesting journey in learning. Uh, neither Phil, who's my partner now, we've been together for 11 years. Um, he was a 747 captain in New Zealand, 40-year career in New Zealand. And I had this chemistry and business background, but both of us have always had this fantasy of pulling grapes and making wine, owning our own small international business. And we got together now, and there's a third person in all of this whose name is Eric Nisig. He's our winemaking consultant and has been for years now, close to 20 years. Um, and the three of us make the wine. We grow the grapes, make the wine, bottle the wine, store the wine, so that it's, everything is right here on the property in the same way that the Providence is done. Right, yeah. Uh, we think that's very important. That's also a European tradition. And the reason is that we want to be able to control quality. Right, so that's a, a, a big journey for you then from an interest and a passion into actually making the, making the wine. Yes, well, that, that was Everett's job. We hired him initially to teach us how to do it. Mm-hmm. And he's been a wonderful teacher and a very, very good friend. He's a terrific winemaker. Um, works for us part of the year and works in France part of the year, okay. uh, making wine in France, and then spends some time uh, sailing in the Mediterranean. Right, okay. Yeah, that's a nice balance, <laughs> isn't it? And... And you're quite uh, 
focused understand on keeping it natural, uh, organic? We're not uh, signed up with any of the programs. Um, I think one of my colleagues in the wine industry, when he's talking about some of these programs that certify wines, he said, all of which are run by committees, he said, I just don't like committees. And um, I have the same dislike. We feel that growing grapes here at Prairie Hills is something that no one else has done but us. And we try to pick and choose what works best for us, what gives us the best quality. All of our land management and plant health management is biodynamic. Mm -hmm. um, virtually all of our spraying to protect the crops during the year is um, organic. But we still are not going to give up the possibility of saving our crop in a bad year because sure. we're, we're controlled by a committee. Yeah, yeah. So that's basically it. Yeah. I also don't feel that... Um, it's a question everyone's asking now. Are you organic? Are you biodynamic? And I think it's a fad. Um, I don't think Providence or Stone Ridge were better example. They are both icons of, of New Zealand's um, Port Oakland world. And I don't think either one of them actually promotes themselves in a, in a very public way mm. that they are organic. Mm. It's just not, I think the people buying this type of wine are more interested in who the people are and how mm. they've made the wine. And, yeah. and basically your brand is a, is a form of trust that your customer, customers have with you. Yeah, so it's more the philosophy behind the wine making and wanting to uh, have the wine express what it is Yes. rather than saying, well, we're going to stick to these rules. Right, and uh, I think that the, um, the other aspects to it, we've found over the years, and Phil has been the primary um, driver in making the menu much more biodynamic and organic. He, he came from a Christchurch, um, and his um, first wife's father was um, head of the compost society at some point in Christchurch, and he, so he grew up doing what he calls permaculture, which is basically reusing everything on the land and not adding anything that isn't natural to the, to the process. It's a very sustainable, uh, maintainable process. So that's basically what he was working toward. Right. Um, we found that the, since he's moved in that direction, that, that the quality is just pouring out of the grapes. My sense is that the grapes, in many cases around the, world, of the New World, are not fully expressing what they are capable of because they're too controlled in what's available to them in the soil and, and the water. We're dry land farmers. We do not um, do not have any uh, irrigation, so. What we're trying to do with our soil management is make it possible for the plants to have everything that they might want to look for in the soil there and available 
in the form that they needed, which is what biodynamic soil preparation and work is about. Mm-hmm. Um, and tasting the wines from six years ago, seven years ago, before we really made it, it obviously takes a few years to get from one point to the other. Um, you can really taste the difference. Mm. It makes a huge difference. The vines, the, the DNA of those vines, there's so much in there. There's so much possibility, and, and you've got to give them the greatest sort of smorgasbord of, right. of uh, minerals and things that you can in your soil. Yeah, yeah. And so have, um, have you pretty much stuck to a similar blend through the years, or is that changing as, no, as time's gone? We we think of each each vintage as almost like a new child or a new adventure. It, every year it's different. It, we we get different quantities, we get different tastes, and instead of trying to make them all taste alike, we work at trying to value what. The vintage has given us. Right. So it's yeah. an expression of that year yeah. and how that year was. And I do think when you taste all their wines, you, you can taste a common thread. Mm-hmm. Most people will rec- who know Prairie Hills wines will recognize that it's a Prairie Hills wine. Mm-hmm. It may taste dramatically different from the previous year. Mm-hmm. We keep our wine in barrels for two years and we trial blend all during those two years. Um, after six months, we'll form a first opinion of what the blend ought to be, mm-hmm. and then six months later, we'll try again and um, adjust that opinion. And we do that through the whole two-year process, and finally blend the varietals together. It's more parcels than varietals because sometimes we'll have, for example, three different parcels of Merlot that we've treated in slightly different ways. Okay. And we keep all of that separate. So the blending is sort of like um, the chef's ingenuity with seasoning a stew or something. Mm-hmm. It's a little bit different depending on the ingredients. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and never just the past master at that. That's, we have to, he has to be around for these blending trials. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then um, coming there, you've you've found that um, even though it wasn't what you expected, that uh, <laughs> you've been able to incorporate it. Well, interestingly, if you'd had a Bordeaux blend from the mid eighteen hundreds, eighteen fifties, fifties or so, you would have had common year in the blend. Right. It wasn't until the phylloxera epidemic uh, killed all the vines in France. Uh, and the replanting began on American rootstocks. That Carmenere more or less, I'm not sure it disappeared, but it was sort of lost. Um, they didn't, the vineyards in, in Bordeaux didn't make any effort to try and graft it and, and right. carry it on, at least we're not aware of it. Favor for some. Our, our clone came from, from Italy, though, and our. The cultural advisor had actually organized the importation of, of the signwood uh, from the University of Bologna. Um, we know exactly the pro- provenance of, of the stuff, but everybody thought it was Kevin their phone, and it wasn't. And we think that the Chileans, who are now making a fair amount of common year, 
believed initially that they they had Merlot. But I don't know where it came from. I don't know whether it came from Bordeaux prior to the epidemic or whether it came through from Spain. But um, they didn't know for sure that that's what they had either until this genetic fingerprinting happened. And it's very different. It has a, a higher level of the white pepper spice in it than Syrah does. So it adds a very um, aromatic, spicy quality that the other grapes don't have. Um, anyway, we found it uh, hard to deal with. Um, it's like a stroppy teenager at um, Carmelina. One year we'll get 600 kilograms off of it, and the next year we'll get two tons. And right. Just, it's a wild Indian. Right. Um, and I understand that everybody who fools with it all over the world has similar problems. So that's another way of thinking about why it left Bordeaux. People just said, too hard to deal with. Right, yeah, yeah. It also has a, a capability to, or the drawback that ideally it needs to be probably 10 years old before it fully reaches maturation. Okay. Um, so it is a, is a very strong structural component of the wine. Mm -hmm. And, and so you're finding that in um, what you're getting now of the vine that you can see the maturity developing? And, and oh, definitely. Yeah. 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 The, the notion that vines need to be at least 15 years old to produce these water varieties at high quality levels certainly seems to be true. Mm -hmm. um, it's hard to know because we were novices at winemaking when we started whether exactly which part of what we've done has made yes. made the quality yeah, improve. Yes, the things that go into All of it, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, um, to me, this was... Uh, I never wanted to retire to play bridge and go golfing. Um, I wanted to do something that allowed me to keep learning and keep thinking about the nature of life. And this is... A constant education. It's a constant meditation on uh, a greater reality than their own little niggly problems that we have in life. So that's that's sort of uh, that's certainly been true for both of us. We feel very blessed to be here. And do you think there'll be? I mean, you've been here for a while now. Twenty years. Twenty years. Yeah. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of other plantings, obviously, in the in the in the region. Do you think? that'll change, or do you think you've actually found a, a, a really suitable microclimate here? I think there are a lot of other places in going, going around uh, toward Calicao Bay and around uh, in that area. Mm -hmm. What needs to happen in order to have a successful planting of grapes in, in this area is that you need to, need to stay on slopes because uh, we have to get drainage. Mm -hmm. We have too much rain in the winter. So it's it's clay, is it? Yeah. Clay. Yeah. So you need to have proper drainage in the vineyard, and you need to have it moving in a direction so the drainage can work. Right. Um, you also need to pick a sunny spot that has some protection. Do not get down in the bottom of a valley or the bottom of this valley. It, it, you need to be on poor soils. The soil. Grapevines don't like really rich soil. Hmm. Um, 
they, they, they like to fight a little bit. Well, they, I think they've kind still gone across the earth. Um, I think that they contain within their own DNA virtually everything that they need. They need rain and they need uh, carbon dioxide from the air and sunlight. And the other uh, minute effects that they pull from the soil that have to be in just the right form for them to even make the root to go and look for it. If they can sense that it's, whether it's there or not, mm. then they'll send out roots to get it. Mm. And if it's not there, they won't go in. It's okay. not there. Yeah. It's quite incredible, really. Brains work, there are aspects of the DNA that just get shut off if mm. there's nothing there to satisfy. Mm. 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 So, so do you think that will happen? Do you think other others will find little pockets? I, I think we're dealing with a little uh, competition now between the demands of Auckland and um, housing and just on the other side of the uh, in Whitford, you're starting to see houses pop up like crazy. We're supposedly going to have a 300 house canal community in that beautiful river bottom in a couple of years. Mm. So that's certainly going to put pressure on so space. So we'll see. Mm. I, I, think, I think all the often venues face this issue. Um, and it kind of depends on what the council believes in terms of keeping these beautiful green spaces around the city and places within the city areas where people can go and have mm. some time in the country. Mm. Mm. So far, they protected us. Yeah, yeah. We'll see. Um, so, is your do you do you wine make here? Oh yes. Yeah, yeah. So on premise. Winery is down there, but we can go and have a look. Look, look if you want mm. to. Bottling plants down there. Out in the garage is where we store all the bottled wine. Right, okay. And um, we keep our wine for five or six years often to age it. Yeah, and that, we put it on the market. That's um, somewhat unique, isn't it? Somewhat, somewhat different to I don't to know anybody else keep, that does no, it. No, it's, to keep, keep it. It actually, we never set out to do that, but the, the global financial crisis hit at just about the same time that. Um, that we began to realize that our wines were all gone before they had a chance to grow up. Right. And we started selling them when they had just gone into bottle after after two years. Um, and people were drinking them before they had a chance to see the development. Yeah, I think that's something that um, we do a little bit too much of in New Zealand is that oh, it gets released and we drink it and um, it doesn't that's worldwide. doesn't get held back well yeah possibly worldwide but um, my first exposure to Prairie Hills was at uh, Casadour restaurant in, yes. in Mount Eden, Auckland and that was already I think probably five year old bottle or something which was really nice just to actually see that mm-hmm. as an option on the menu because most of the wines you get in unless you're, you're paying quite a bit for them mm-hmm. is um uh, are much younger, and um, so it was. It was certainly memorable. Went really well with what we had then. Good. I can remember that. <laughs> and so the the during the financial crisis, we just basically stopped pushing the wine. There was a huge flood of wine 
being put on the market at vastly reduced prices because people needed cash to survive, and because we were retirees and we could afford to just sit on it, so we did. Yeah, 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 that's know? nice. And so we ended up now, what I'm current, my current releases right now range from uh, our 2008 reserve one all the way through 9, 10, up to 14, our second label is now 14 wine, and then our rosé is a 16 wine, so it's a huge spread. Yeah, yeah. What we're selling right now. And uh, anything new on the horizon for Prairie Hills? Is rosé relatively new Ro- for you? Rosé is something we do when we can, mm-hmm. and it's the circumstances are different every year as to making that decision. And most years we make a rosé, but there are times when there's just not enough fruit out there to spare it. Mm-hmm. Uh, or one of the several other reasons why we wouldn't do it. Um, we only make about a thousand, well not even a thousand liters, about 750 liters, so it's, it's not widely distributed because no. there's not much of it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, we only make about a thousand cases a year, total. Right. So that's a very tiny operation. Sure. Um, but you have, you have, you are selling into second load, Mokoroa. Oh, okay. Tell us about uh, that. Mokoroa is the Pariri uh, moth. It's the moth that actually uh, lives as larvae inside the Pariri tree and then pupates into a big green okay. moth. You've probably seen them. Yeah. But they, um, <coughs> We've taken the line drawing of that moth and put it on our label and called it <coughs> Mokoroa. Right, okay. And it's um, it's a, a label that we use when the wine, or parcel of the wine, is not quite up to the standard of our estate wine. Okay, so still, fr- still from your property, right, mm-hmm. yeah, okay. Well, very good. We still know the machines in the water. <laughs> and... Um, so you're quite well represented in New Zealand, but you've also offshore? Yep. We export to Australia, US, uh, Europe, Hong Kong, Japan, Singapore. Right, okay. That's, um, Small trickles. That's a good spread, though. Yeah. We're very proud to, of the five or six Michelin-starred restaurants around the world that are, have Prairie Hills on them. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. Well done. The most recent one, and probably one of our longest um, um, relationships, is with the Inn at Little Washington in, in the mountains outside of Washington, D.C. They have been, uh, they focus on local produce from Virginia. And since I'm Virginian, I convinced them that this wine I made on <laughs> the other side of the world was a Virginia wine, too. And they have been, they have been wonderfully loyal to the quality of Prairie Hills, and they just got a two Michelin star rating. Wow. So wow, that was pretty good. exciting. It is very exciting. Well done. And we're on a, in a Michelin star restaurant in New York City, and a couple in Tokyo. So it's, it's exciting, but it's, I think, a little bit like Providence. It's a bit of a hand sell. It's very small. Mm. Um, I like to think of it as a well-kept secret. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so there's a, a fair amount of effort that's gone into yeah. getting to that place. Mm. 
Well, we, it, it is literally hand selling it. Most of the people, most of the distributors have come to us rather than... There's so many wines in the world. If you go and talk to distributors who might represent you in another country, they usually say, don't want to talk to you. Go away. I've got too much already. Yeah. So you have to... For, for wines like ours that are clearly minute quantity of boutique wines... The people have got to find us. Mm. So. Mm. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thanks, Judy. Thanks for your time here today. I do appreciate that. Very welcome. We, um, we would encourage anybody who's interested to come and have a look at some of the land in Cleveland. And I think there's some wonderful sites that haven't been snapped up. Some real possibilities. Mm. Yeah, well, there you go. It's out there now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Judy. Right. Thank you. We've been speaking with Judy Fowler at Puderi Hills, southeast of Auckland in Clevedon. If you're wanting to find out more, just look up puderihills.com. Also check out podcast.nz where you'll find some more of the New Zealand Wide podcasts and some other great podcast series as well. Thanks for listening in. Hey, kōna mai. Bye for now.